Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 192 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a producer whose name you may or may not know, but whose work you surely do. She is, and for the last 22 years has been, the co-custodian with her stepbrother and Eon Productions partner, Michael G. Wilson, of one of the most iconic and beloved properties of all time, the James Bond franchise. Together, she and Wilson have overseen its last eight installments, 1995's GoldenEye, 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies, 1999's The World Is Not Enough, 2002's Die Another Day, 2006's Casino Royale, 2008's Quantum of Solace, 2012's Skyfall, and 2015's Spectre, with her increasingly taking the lead. As the New York Times put it, quote, Yes, a woman is in charge of the world's most aspirational male brand, close quote. Additionally, she recently produced her first film outside of the world of 007, an adaptation of Peter Turner's 1986 memoir, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, that she's been trying to make for 31 years, and that she finally got made under the direction of Paul McGuigan and with the actors Annette Benning and Jamie Bell playing Golden Age star Gloria Graham and Turner, respectively. I'm talking about one of the most successful and powerful women in Hollywood, Barbara Broccoli. But first, I sat down at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter with the forces behind the two best bookstores in or around Hollywood, Nadine Vassallo, the general manager of Book Soup, and Jeffrey Mantor, the owner of Larry Edmonds Bookshop, to talk about the best Hollywood-related books of 2017. Nadine and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us and for running such great establishments that have taken a lot of hours of my life in the best sense. So to begin with, do you two know each other? You're on the similar you know, beat here in town, but have you met before? No, first time. Yeah. Maybe you can each tell us a little bit about the, the history and mission of your bookstores and how each of you came to them. Jeff, maybe we can start with you. I'm proud to come to the Larry Edmonds Bookshop. Larry Edmonds Bookshop next year will be celebrating our 80th anniversary. Wow. Store was founded in 1938 by Larry Edmonds, who had previously been an employee of an establishment called the Stanley Rose Bookshop. Stanley Rose Bookshop was in on Hollywood Boulevard across from the Hirschfeld Building where the Writers Guild was located as well. And Stanley Rose was often fond of saying he didn't like reading a lot, but he loved hanging out with writers. <laughs> Had a writer's room in the back. Nathaniel West and a lot of writers there. So Larry Edmonds came from that tradition. He and his partner, Milt Lubavisky, then founded the Larry Edmonds Bookshop. And were a general bookshop for a number of years until the 60s, basically, when Milt Lubavisky and his wife at the time, Git Lubavisky, Git Poland, beyond that, decided that catalogs they'd been sending out with a lot of film material, film-related items, other ephemera besides books as well, posters, photos, equipment, various things, were getting such a response around the country that maybe this was a good field to start specializing in. And then in the 60s, early 60s, Larry McMurtry, author mm -hmm. of Lonesome Dove and you know many other fine works, came in and kind of cleared out a lot of the non-cinema-related first editions, and the store became established firmly as a, as a film-based And you joined um, uh, at what point? I became a member of the team in... 
April of 1991, so I've been there for 26, almost 27 years wow. now. Nadine, how about Book Soup? Book Soup was founded in 1975 by Glenn Goldman. It's been the bookseller to the great and infamous on the Sunset Strip ever since in a couple different locations. When the founder of Booksoup passed away a little over 10 years ago, Roman's Bookstore, which is the oldest bookstore in Southern California based out of Pasadena, actually stepped in and they purchased the store. So they now own Booksoup. They've let it keep kind of its own independent Sunset Strip flavor. So we do a lot of um, business in music and film books, as well as having a really large fiction section. Those are sort of our specialties. I've been at the store for just under two years Mm -hmm. now. Previously, I was in the publishing world in New York. Well, so I guess it kind of begs the question, at least for me, would you guys both be just as happy running a bookstore that was sort of a general bookstore in like Omaha? Or is there something specific about Hollywood and Hollywood-related books that, you know, on a personal level for each of you, appeals to you, Jeff? Well, I think I would be happier running a general bookshop somewhere as opposed to, let's say, working, uh, you know, at an automotive supply store or something <laughs> like that. I'm definitely more inclined to the to the literary flavor and, and like a lot of other books, but I definitely believe that finding the niche and getting to do what I do is was a specialty item. I, I previously worked at a, a store called Book City here, which was a Hollywood institution for a number of years in the used book world, and we carried new books as well. And that was, I mean, we had a quarter of a million books in there or something. It was ridiculous. And I loved that store, but there was always something about the Larry Edmonds bookshop where it was at that time considered kind of a premium type place to, you know, a step up. I definitely found the specialization of what the store did to be a particular interest to me. I was a musician. I was a film school guy. So steering towards the arts was definitely something I found more appealing. And we should note that Larry Evans Bookshop also sells, I believe, stills and other things that are not exactly books, but related to film, interesting memorabilia and stuff, right? Yeah, I think one of the big distinctions between our store and Book Soup is I carry out-of-print material as well. We also carry posters, photos, press books, Mm -hmm. so all kinds of stuff like that. I'm very, very specialized whenever I can be Mm -hmm. in that area, yeah. And Nadine, Hollywood stuff specifically or not? Yeah, I think I feel um, very much the same. For me, when I was working in the publishing industry, I was in more of like a research role where I didn't get to spend a lot of time actually around books. All I got to see would be like the sales figures for those books for the year. (laughs) So getting to be in an environment where I'm physically interacting with books and talking to people who are excited about them and sharing that with um, individuals is like, that's the most important thing to me. As I understand it, there once was a time in the memory of people who are, you know, some people who are still around today when there were dozens of bookstores in and around Hollywood You know, I don't know if they specialize in Hollywood related books, but that you had a lot of options in town. We don't have that many. And thankfully, among the few that we do are are you guys. But what's happened? I guess, Jeff, you've been around here longer. What's happened around you and how have you guys managed to survive? Work 10 times is harder for (laughs) for what you do. I also really make an effort to bring the books to the people. I spend a lot more time organizing and planning events with guests We do tons of events at the Egyptian Theater and the Aero Theater. Last night I was at the Sportsman's Lodge for an event with Tippi Hedren. Mm -hmm. I was at the Bootleg Theater Sunday doing an event for Jennifer Lewis. 
So I spend a lot more time planning those things and taking books to people and trying to advertise and promote the brand, you know, where wherever I go to the to those fans. Hollywood, I think, used to have a special flavor for a lot of people that were there once upon a time that were collectors or fans. Like you said, there used to be a number of stores either that specialized in collectibles and or books, and you could really make a day of it. People could come to Hollywood in the morning, walk up one side, back down the other, and stop in, you know, six, eight, ten different stores, find one item here, one item there, whatever. And the changing of, I, you know, I, I don't know if we're a less literary world or not. I always like to say I don't need to make everybody happy, but I need to make the people that like what I mm-hmm. do happy. Right. So it might be a smaller percentage. I don't know if the amount of options that people have out there in the world have given everybody a slightly shorter attention span yeah. <laughs> as well. I, I I don't know if that's the case or not. I do know there's still tons of dedicated fans and readers and people that love, you know, the specialty of connecting, watching a film with studying a film, right. knowing the backstory of the film, things like that. And Nadine, I think you do something in that also Larry Edmonds Bookshop does, but it maybe is a way to keep people engaged is bringing in a lot of authors as well to talk about their books when they get published and things like that. It's a big thing for you guys, right? Yeah, definitely a huge thing for us. We have an event almost every day of the year. Wow. And we do a lot of offsite events as well where we're selling books at larger events that our store can't accommodate. But yeah, it's a huge thing for us for sure. When we were scheduling your guys' visit, one of the things that I asked you to tell me before you came here were your five favorite Hollywood-related books of 2017. And out of all the ones that were out there over the past year, you actually agreed on two. So I thought let's start with a little bit of a discussion about those two. The first of them is Hank and Jim by Scott Amon, one of my favorite writers and film historians and biographers, I guess you'd say. His past biographies include Mary Pickford, America's Sweetheart, and Louis B. Mayer, Lion of Hollywood. Tell us about this latest one, The Hank is Henry Fonda, the Jim is Jimmy Stewart. Nadine, you want to kick us off? Yeah, um, I think it's just a really charming book because more than a biography of either of them specifically, it's the story of their friendship. So it's about their impact on each other's lives. There's all these really sweet moments when one of them will be kind of going through something and come to rely on the other one, even like staying with each other for long stretches of time and I think it's just so sweet to see the depiction of a friendship like that and especially a friendship between two older actors who I think we tend to think of as being sort of very like masculine or stoic when you think of like men from that era so to see this very sweet connection between them I really liked and I'm personally a really big fan of Jimmy Stewart and Jeff when they moved out to Hollywood they so they lived together right I think it was something wasn't it sort of along the lines of you know you hear these crazy stories at one time Duval and Hackman I think lived together and you go through history but this was sort of this was a bromance that went way back to Omaha I think right it's funny that it's like their paths briefly cross very early in life and one of the things that I want to know more about and I don't think there's a suitable biography is the actress Margaret Sullivan, who becomes a very 
key component that they both are infatuated with, and now I'm kind of infatuated with <laughs> wanting to know more about her as well, because right. what attracted all of these different people, she also married Leland Hayward, who's, you know, a, a big Hollywood player as well behind the scenes. What I also found interesting about it and their friendship is, number one, the span of how much it covers. Mm-hmm. Number two, the differences that they had and maybe both their outgoing attitudes, their political attitudes, their crossing, you know, of the war and of basically a history of Hollywood. You're watching it changing from the golden age of the studio era into this independent era. And you follow these two amazing careers and see where they intersect and they don't. But yeah, it's it's fun to see how they remained a part of each other's lives and you know seem to have that friendship that's doesn't need a daily reminder that mm-hmm. they're friends you can skip a long period of time and come back and pick up like you were just went to the restroom and came right. back now what i'm just trying to remember because i have not fully read this one yet i bought it as a birthday gift for my dad just recently from one of your stores i will not announce which but i will just say that i remember noticing something that was crazy that so I think did both of them or one of them studied under Marlon Brando's mother in Omaha? Yes, it's it's Fonda, who I believe studies with Brando's mom, yeah. What a what a small world. Okay, so let's go on to the second of the two that you agreed about. This is Glenn Frankel's High Noon, the Hollywood Blacklist, and the Making of an American Classic. Jeff, you want to kick us off? Really, really find a lot of depth in Glenn's work. I I first became familiar with him and did an event with him with his previous book. He did a book on the film The Searchers. Mm -hmm. I, for many years in my youth, had been very resistant to, let's call them the pre-Leone Westerns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, never really embraced the genre too much until I had discovered the film The Searchers. And it really kind of became a gateway to me to seeing the evolution of the genre as well. So Glenn had written a book that covered the original story that The Searchers was based on. So a historical account as well as the account of the making of the film. And I really liked the way those two were intersected. He seemed to follow the same trend with High Noon, mixing what I, the story of the Hollywood blacklist, the story of Stanley Kramer and kind of the rise of the independence out of the ashes of the studio system. Mm -hmm. So there's a political element, there's a changing of the Hollywood history element, and then there's the biography of the players involved in the making of the film, Gary Cooper and the rest of the crew there, Carl Foreman, the writer, and so a number of independent stories that all kind of intersect at this one place. And, you know, I also think the book... In light of times that we talk about wherever we live or whatever, that the story of the Hollywood blacklist is always one that people should, lest history repeat itself, right. that people should should pay attention to. Right. Nadine, would you add anything? I mean, I'm personally not really a fan of the Western genre. I just haven't really explored it much. So to me, what was so interesting about the book was particularly the portrayal of the blacklist and how it showed its impact on the making of the film and the lives of everyone involved just with to it. Just remind folks, I mean, this, mm-hmm. it in some ways is a pretty clear parable of what was going on at the time where yeah. everybody's turning away from, from their friends and it is an incredible. And so the, the movie was 1952 and I guess is any, nobody's left from it at this point. Everybody, Lloyd Bridges is dead. Everybody's gone, I guess. I can't think of anybody that's left yeah. now. 
All right, so Nadine, your other three were Improv Nation by Sam Wasson, Woman Number 17 by Eden Lepucky, and Uncommon Type by one Tom <laughs> Hanks. Can you give us a little overview about you know those three why they'd make your top five of 2017 yeah i feel like i cheated a little bit and kind of stretched my definition (laughs) of hollywood related Um, but all of these i felt were great books that also touched something that's interesting to me in or about hollywood improv nation is a history of the development of improvisational comedy sam watson is a fantastic writer he's done a few other film and theater related books but i felt this was like a subject that was just the right moment to explore it. If you're paying attention to anything that's happening in film and TV comedy, so much of it's coming out of that world. Um, It was very interesting to kind of learn about how it developed as a modern form. Mm -hmm. Woman Number 17 is actually a novel that is set in West Hollywood. Parts of it taking place like right on the corner where Book Soup is. (laughs) (laughs) So it felt... um, very present to me as I was reading it. It also, it's a literary novel, but it kind of borrows from some elements of noir that felt really on point to me. It's also just a novel about family and about art. One of the main characters is a woman who's attempting to turn her whole life into a performance art project. Um, Another is a subject of a controversial famous photograph. And it kind of just is around the periphery of the film industry. Tom Hanks' Uncommon Type, I thought was another um, just really charming book in a way that is felt sorely needed this year. <laughs> I know a lot of people who, you know, Tom Hanks is their most beloved actor. And to find out that he also can write just these really witty, funny, charming short stories is just such a nice thing. Yeah. He's also a collector of vintage typewriters. So <laughs> one of them factors into every story somehow. And it kind of feels like they're piecing together like little bits of letters and newspaper clippings and things like that to create this book of somewhat connected stories. But I just think it's nice to see someone of his stature like move into the literary world in a way that actually feels like earned and like he's done his work. (laughs) Well, Jeff, your other three were 20th Century Fox, A Century of Entertainment by Michael Troyan, Stephen Sylvester, and Jeffrey Thompson. Then we have Ava, A Life in the Movies by Kendra Bean and Anthony Uzarowski. And Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film by Alan K. Road. Why these three? Well, first I wanted to say in regard to what Nadine selected yes. right there, yeah, Sam's a wonderful writer. His his Fosse book is a, a definitive portrait of Fosse. And I also find it interesting that you mentioned that you love Jimmy Stewart and that you picked Tom Hanks. Yes, I find, exactly. I, I, I find, uh, I, I, I see a, I see a yes. thread right there in, in, in the leading man type that you're embracing okay. there. The 20th Century Fox book, I, for years and years in my business, was asked constantly, do you have photos of the back lot? Do you have behind-the-scenes pictures, people at work? We want to see that, not just the, the resultant product. In recent years, there's a company that started doing these books that are basically photo-based, kind of postcard-based, Ar- Arcadia Publishing, and more of these photos started getting out there. But no one had really taken a step forward into doing definitive studio histories other than filmographies. Mm -hmm. And a handful of years ago, Stephen and Michael Troyan and another author, Steve Bingen, did a study of the MGM studio. Mm -hmm. 
And it was kind of a first book that started to compile some of this stuff. Since then, Steve Bingen's gone on and added a Warner Brothers and a Paramount. And now this 20th Century Fox book has come out from Mr. Sylvester and Mr. Troyan and company. And wow, it's, and I mean this in the best sense of the yeah. word, it can be a doorstop. Yeah, it's a it's, big coffee table it's book, right? It's 20th Century Fox itself, I was told by one of the authors got involved in the project as well. So they were really able to get support from the studio. There's literally hundreds and hundreds of photographs you know, many of them before never seen, and a really fine history of the studio. So a years in the making project that really, really helps serve a nice missing piece of history right there. I just want to interject that, I mean, it seems like right now we're in the middle of a, there's some negotiations going on right now where Fox apparently may be, 20th Century Fox may be acquired by Disney, and who knows what's going to happen to that back lot. So just an interesting moment to think about the history of that lot. So that's a, that's a great choice. Let me let you go on to your other two. Eva, life in the movies, a personal love and obsession with <laughs> the subject matter in yes. case my... Oh my uh, God, he's got a tattoo on in, his arm. There in in case my Ava tattoo isn't enough <laughs> to right. clue in. Right. I first met Kendra a number of years ago. She had done a book on Vivian Lee, which was a real passion project for her. And what I found really fascinating about her Vivian book prior to this one was a, a really good balance between photo and text. So frequently you get one or the other. You can get a, you know, a brilliant photographic essay of somebody, but that tends to be the book goes in that direction and the biography seems to lack. Mm -hmm. Or you get a book that can be very scholarly and definitive, but the visual element of what made that star such a star is missing. Mm -hmm. I really found this book to be a really wonderful marriage of, of the two components right there. I mean, you can read the text in and of itself, but when you have all these wonderful pictures to look at, both behind the scenes and the studio publicized stuff, for someone who generally never believed, you know, she was a star, <laughs> and I... I I don't know how that yeah. came about. Much like Burt Lancaster and, you know, the scene in The Killers when he first spots her singing on the piano. Right. I mean, it, it didn't take me long to be entranced. So I, I found that to be a, you know, a, a real wonderful mix of the two. I wonder if the book answers the big mystery that I've always wondered about. How does Ava Gardner end up marrying Mickey Rooney? I don't get it. <laughs> But good for him, I guess. You it's know, but. very early on in her <laughs> early days, yeah. Anyway, but she showed a wide range of taste there, going yes. from Artie Shaw to Frank to right. Oh God, yeah. Many other, and yeah. Howard Hughes is a constant thread through her life. Right. He keeps showing up. Right. Interesting. All right. So your fifth is about the director of Casablanca. Michael Curtiz, a life in film. Alan, one of the people behind the success of the Film Noir Foundation. And so I've known him in that capacity predominantly. Michael Curtiz, whose star, incidentally, is right in front of Hollywood Boulevard, so I've swept it more times than I would care to count. This is just truly, truly a definitive study by a wonderful writer who does what, you know, the best writers do in, in any and all fields. The subject becomes kind of an all-encompassing thing for, for a very, very long time. I know Alan went back to Hungary to even do research to prepare for this. Michael Curtiz made 180 films, many of them in Hollywood. It's another book that covers a vast span of the history. 
when I was young and first discovered classic Hollywood as a kid, you know, in, in Reno watching these old movies with my dad, many of my favorite films were the old Warner Brothers films from the 30s. There was something about them that was just different than a lot of the glossier type productions. There's something that seemed a little more gritty, a little more, you know, ripped from the front pages mm -hmm. kind of about a lot of the films. And of course that produced Edward G. Robinson and George Raft and James Cagney. And, you know, my favorite was Humphrey Bogart. Mm -hmm. And so when I discovered that the name behind a lot of these movies and Errol Flynn, don't let me forget Errol say, Flynn. Because he did the Adventures of Robin Hood too, right? So you have, you know, the Seahawk and Robin Hood and Angels with Dirty Faces and Casablanca. But he was also a director that did movies like Mildred Pierce mm -hmm. and Yankee Doodle Dandy. So it's a real testament to someone who, within the confines of that studio system or whatever their job seemed to be at the time, they were up to the task. And that's what I find about classic Hollywood so amazing to me is the versatility of the performers and the people behind the scenes to work in all these different genres. And, you know, you're making a swashbuckler on Friday, you're making a Western right. the next week. And I don't know that contemporary forces have that versatility, that training to be able to do that. So this book takes a real definitive look at, at the director and the director's also you know, has a very interesting behind the scenes life as well. So it's long overdue and it's it's a real, a real definitive study of someone that was missing in the way that, you know, Ford and Hawks and, mm -hmm. and Hitchcock and a lot of these other directors have, have been looked at over and over and over again. This is a real missing piece for... There aren't yeah. many people around today who knew or worked with Michael Curtiz. I wonder the two that occur to me just as we're talking... Olivia de Havilland and Anne Blythe. Do you know if they got to either of those ladies for this? I know Anne Blythe was and has been a film noir guest wow. for many of the noir city conventions. They, they've had her in the past speak. Mm -hmm. Mr. de Havilland, who coincidentally, once upon a time, used to be a customer of our store really? for a number in? of years. What? Wouldn't come in necessarily, but I'd get a phone call once or twice a year from France, <laughs> right. and she would say, do you have any copies of my book? Every Frenchman has one. Wow. Because she would constantly receive requests yes. for copies of her book. And so she would call me. We'd gather up all the copies we could find <laughs> and send them off to the chateau <laughs> for her to send out around the world. I know that... The Curtis family even spoke on behalf of the author to try to get Mr. Havlin's cooperation here, and she did not participate. Well, I want to ask you about a strange thing that's happened over the last three or four years in, in Hollywood-related book publishing, which is that there have been a lot of books about Hitler in Hollywood. These books were not on your list, but I wanted to ask you about them. This year we saw Stephen J. Ross's Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood in America. And we also saw from Laura Rosenzweig, Hollywood's Spies, The Undercover Surveillance of Nazis in Los Angeles. These come close on the heels of two others, Ben Irwin's The Collaboration, Hollywood's Pact with Hitler, which unfortunately I think has been largely discredited since it came out, but then also Tom Doherty's more scholarly book, Hollywood and Hitler, 1933 to 1939. So I just wonder what you guys make of this weird trend. Yeah, that's true. I have noticed that in a number of books that came out this year. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe people are just 
interested in looking back at that era right now because some of it feels depressingly relevant. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you guys had a chance to check out any of them? Are any of these actually, do they stand out to you as yeah, book. Hitler in Los Angeles I have looked at. I mean, that we do a holiday catalog every year at BookSoup, and that's one of the books in our catalog this mm. year, which is always kind of weird to see. <laughs> Hitler in Hollywood. Happy <laughs> holidays. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> but yeah, it's actually almost written kind of like right. a thriller in a right. way. Like the kind of main character, so to speak, of it almost becomes like a Bond sort of figure. Yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't note that a number of my THR colleagues have written some good books that I think you guys sell. Kim Masters wrote The Keys to the Kingdom, The Rise of Michael Eisner and the Fall of Everybody Else, and then also Hit and Run, which I realize turns up on a lot of best all-time Hollywood books lists. That was one written with Nancy Griffin, the full title Hit and Run, How John Peters and Peter Goober Took Sony for a Ride. This year we had Stephen Galloway, my colleague, wrote this biography of Sherry Lansing, Leading a Lady. Any hopefully positive feedback on these books from from you guys how's i mean the sherry lansing one seems to have gone over very well jeff yes very very well sadly i was unable to do an event with her although i've done a number of events with her husband yes and it's you know i always think it's good to when there is the feminine perspective from the business aspect of hollywood there's a handful of books that precede her book, but very few have, you know, people can speak from the place that she speaks from. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Linda Opst a number of years ago did Hello, He Lied, and of course the Julia Phillips book, which yes. is You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town <laughs> right. Again, kind of opened up a new kind of subgenre right. for Hollywood writing. I think it's a much needed, you know, perspective for women that want to find a, a place in the you know, the business here, right here to see from someone the pressures and the pitfalls that that come from running a studio. Yeah, yeah. Let me just ask you about one other book that probably had people talking in Hollywood more than any other, I think, in the last, it's not 2017 quite, it was just before 2017, but I guess we can say the paperback or something was 2017. And that is Powerhouse, the untold story of Hollywood's creative artist agency. This is the latest oral history from James Andrew Miller. His previous ones, which were written with Tom Shales, were Live from New York, The Complete Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live, as told by its stars, writers, and guests. And then also, those guys have all the fun inside the world of ESPN. I love a good oral history, and we've gotten them over the years from George Stevens has done these ones that were about conversations at the AFI, and Peter Bogdanovich did them with different directors, where you just sort of read the whole it's not broken into a story. It's just reading people in their own words. Why did this one on CAA really captivate the community? I, I heard one, before you answer, I just have to say, I heard that a lot of people were going into your stores and opening it up and looking in the <laughs> index. And Is this true? Wait, there is no There's index. no index, but yeah. everybody just wants to know if they're in it. So that I was smart. I personally saw that happen several <laughs> times. We, we couldn't keep the book in stock either when it came out. Right. We had such demand for it. We were like rushing to get as many copies as we can. But I definitely saw people come in, flip straight to the back, and then just like the look of disappointment on their face. Yeah, you're going to actually have to read the book. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But have you guys had a chance to read it? What do you think it is? Just the dishiness of it? That these guys, Michael Ovitz, Ron Meyer, guys who don't normally open up, the fact that they really opened up, is that what it is? I think that probably is it. I, I do a lot of events also with the 
Live Talks Los Angeles. I, I didn't, unfortunately, do this powerhouse event, mm-hmm. but from the promoter, I can tell you much in the way she's discussing people coming in and looking at that index that the promoter of those events told me that he had never received so many requests for attendance. So many people wanted to, you know, be a part of this event, wanted to hear things firsthand. They and they're Michael all Lovitz other people from agencies. Yeah. I think the oral biography, I, I, I think that's just, it's a wonderful way to, to look at a subject when it's comprehensive or when there can be a lot of disseminating viewpoints mm-hmm. and to read them like next to yes. each other <laughs> is, is it's always fascinating to see everybody's perspective on, you know, the, the Rashomon effect right. Of, right. of how did all of these different people view a different subject. So Hollywood is not a big place as, as mm-hmm. you obviously know. <laughs> so I'm sure there's a lot of curiosity. Yes. For sure. <laughs> well, let's close with some recommendations from, Two experts here about, you know, if you had to name, let's say, you know, your three must-read, all-time great Hollywood-related books. Maybe we'll go back and forth. Nadine, you want to start us off with one? This doesn't, they don't have to be in any particular order, but these are the three that you cannot not have on your shelf. One I would say is essential is The Devil Finds Work by James Baldwin, which is basically a book-length essay on race in cinema and his point of view as a viewer of cinema. But just the language that he uses even describing a shot on the screen mm-hmm. is just beautiful to read in addition to the insights that it gets wow. at. Yeah. Narrowing it down to three, you're making it really difficult. <laughs> I, I, I just scribbled here and really? wrote down, you know, a dozen. Kevin Brownlow, The Parade's mm-hmm. Gone By, yeah. would so probably be an essential one. When people come in and ask me to help them build a library or create a film place. I, I often start with that one. It was written in the 60s. Anybody that's not familiar with Kevin Brownlow, one of the great preservationists and voices for preservation in film history. And one of the earlier books where he was able to go and actually speak to a lot of the originators of cinema while they were still alive. So there are a lot of first-hand accounts in there. And I think it's really part of what a trend was for cinema scholarship and cinema writing that in the 1960s and 70s, I think, was really at a, a zenith mm-hmm. because it was still a f- new enough medium that a conclusive history hadn't really been studied yet. And so I, I always look to that one if you want to find a, the ultimate story of the early years of Hollywood. That's a great one. And I would just add that a, a nice companion thing for that would be there. It's sort of hard to find, but you can find a great epic documentary that I think Brownlow did with David Gill, I want to say. It's the footage of them interviewing a lot of these silent era stars. So I, I love that. But let's go back, Nadine, your second. Another one that been really important to me was Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover, which is more of an academic sort of Texas a feminist perspective on horror film. Hmm. I have always been a pretty big fan of horror films, but sometimes I can find it to be really difficult to watch. But she sort of flips them on their head in a way that I feel like makes it something that's more interesting to me, I guess. Wow, okay. Jeff? I'll refer back to one that you previously mentioned. I'll I'll mention Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, Mm -hmm. Peter Biskind. And if you want to mention the Down and Dirty book as well, which is obviously a, a little more topical right now with the Miramax and Sundance elements. But Easy Riders Raging Bulls covers 
the age of cinema from basically the two films it's describing in the title there from Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde up through Raging Bull and the start of, you know, what is considered the blockbuster era or whatever. But it's a really great and kind of oral history based book where you look at so many fascinating people and how when Hollywood seemed to not know what to do turned to all of these young guns yeah. that seem to have their their finger on the pulse of popular culture and were given an amount of freedom, probably an unprecedented amount of freedom in Hollywood history to make all of these movies. And so you find all of these wonderful characters in there, uh, you know, the Hal Ashby's mm-hmm. and, you know, the beginning of your Scorsese's and your Coppola's and that whole era and... It's just inherently readable as well. Yeah. It's it's one of those. I, I always call them the you know one more book, right. which means you're lying there in bed at night and you say, "I'm just going to read one more chapter before I go to sleep." <laughs> it's past your bedtime, right. but you just you just want to go a little farther right. in the story. So I always find that a really good primer yeah. to read for people to get into cinema. And then if you don't know these, if you know these films, they're wonderful stories. If you don't know the films, it's the perfect gateway to go and see them and and discover for yourself. One of the young guns who was coming up at at the time of that, who is referenced in it also has a great book of his own. I just want to plug Robert Evans. The kid stays in the picture. Another, another good one. Wonderful one. Nadine, number three. I think Easy Riders Raging Bulls might be one of mine too, but if I could mention another novel, I think my favorite Hollywood-related novel is um, Francesca Leo Block's Weetsie Bat, which I would credit as being part of the reason why I live here today. Reading that book when I was a teenager really impacted me. It's about a, a family living in the hills in Los Angeles and they're all making movies together but it's also kind of this story about like found families and there's like a magical realist element to it it's just really beautiful writing with incredible descriptions of LA and every character in the book is involved in film in some way and it kind of shows this parallel between the magic of movie making and like the magic that makes their own lives what they are Um, but it's a really beautiful book wow Jeff? My third book, I'm going to select George Harrell's Hollywood. Oh. It's a book by my friend Mark A. Vieira, yeah. a photographer himself, a student of Harrell. And for me, Harrell, not the only photographer, there's obviously several, but can basically embody the imagery that created, you know, the iconic desire that everyone wanted when they thought of Hollywood the glamour of that era is so captured in his work with so many major stars the Crawfords the Harlows the ones that I think just made the movies what they were once upon a time for people whether they wanted escapist entertainment or whatever else they they looked to this you know, they looked West. So for me, I I think that is such a valuable component of, of the Hollywood experience that I I, I think I would, I would pick that one. I would want that on my bookshelf and there's nobody that wouldn't come over to your house and see that book on the coffee table and not pick it up and look through a few pages and kind of ooh and ah. So it's a subject very worthy of, of uh, mention. Just as a, Moderator, personal point of privilege. I'm going to quickly 
throw out my three. I'm ready to take you know criticism here, but I'm gonna I, I'm gonna do it. David Thompson, The Whole Equation. I love that book. John Gregory Dunn, The Studio. A look at Fox during the some tough times there, and. My favorite author, I think, Neil Gabler, Winchell, Gossip Power and the Culture of Celebrity. I love that book. And then I just am going to throw out there also, just as with an asterisk, because I don't know that it's the kind of book that you read like these other books, but it was very important for, for me. And a lot of people, I read Ryan Murphy was very into this book, Inside Oscar by Damian Bona and Mason Wiley, just the the juiciest history of the Oscars. It's not, you know, Robert Osborne was a great guy and a terrific historian, but he did the official history of the Oscars. This is the unofficial history of the Oscars. So I will throw those out there. But thank you guys so much. And listeners, get to these bookstores before the holidays that you can't do any better than what they have to offer. And you've got now a lot of suggestions. So Nadine and Jeff, thank you really for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now for my conversation with Barbara Broccoli, who rarely grants interviews and may never have granted an interview as long as this one. Over the course of our conversation, the 57-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how her father, the late Albert Cubby Broccoli, wound up partnering with the late Harry Saltzman in the 1950s and acquiring the screen rights to Ian Fleming's novels about James Bond, back at a time when few could have imagined that they would spawn the longest-running film franchise of all time and one that would gross more than $6 billion in North America and billions more abroad. How her own involvement with the Bond films grew over the years— from being a toddler on the set of the first, 1962's Dr. No, to paying her dues on various other installments, in the publicity department, as an assistant director, and as an associate producer, among other capacities. What led to her father handing over the producing reins of the franchise to her and her considerably older stepbrother Michael G. Wilson in 1995, a year before their father died, and what the personal and professional dynamic is between her and Wilson? What it has been like knowing, working with, and ultimately having to preside over a changing of the guard of actors who play 007, and what the latest is on the as-yet-untitled 25th Bond installment, which is due out in November 2018, whether or not a person of color or a woman might one day be cast as James Bond, whether or not there might ever be a James Bond crossover film, and what the major differences are between producing on the gargantuan scale of a Bond film versus the far more intimate scale of a project like Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, how she and Peter Turner first met and became close friends, what she made of the giant age gap in his relationship with Gloria Graham, and why she spent the last three-plus decades fighting to help him share his story with the world, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank uh, you. We always begin by asking every guest where they were born and raised and what their folks did for a living. You have a more interesting answer <laughs> than most, so please take it away. I was born here in, in Los Angeles, but raised in London. My parents were living in London, and my mother wanted me to be born in the United States, so she flew over heavily pregnant and had me, and then brought me back to London when I was just a couple weeks old. So I grew up in London. And your mom was an actress, right? She was. She was a, an actress and a writer, pretty extraordinary woman. Mm -hmm. She and my father were an incredible couple. How did they meet? And then I'll, if you can lead us into what your father, how he got into the business. Well, the story is they actually originally met when he was selling Christmas trees right here on Wilshire Boulevard. Oh, really? And he 
sold her a Christmas tree and offered to put this, you know, nail the stand on it. So they met then, but they didn't meet again until many, many years later. And they got married in Las Vegas. And then they moved. My father had been living in London, so my mother, you know, went back to London. My father had two kids, mm-hmm. my brother Tony and my sister Tina. And then I was born, and so we all grew up together in London. Was he already... I mean, I read some story about he just by chance knew Cary Grant or something early in his career, and that was how he ended up developing an interest <laughs> in getting in the business. Is that right? Yeah, well, he, he grew up on Long Island with his first cousin, my uncle Pat DeSico, who was quite a character. And Pat came out ahead of him to Hollywood and was living here and was in the same apartment building as Cary Grant. So Pat cabled my father and said, you have to come out here. It's just <laughs> incredible. <laughs> so my father came out here and started working at Fox as an assistant director, was an assistant director to Howard Hawks on The Outlaw. Yeah. And he was very close to Howard Hughes and knew Hughes very well. So he had an amazing time, yeah, hanging out with all these fascinating people. Now, your father's name was Albert, but he was called Cubby. What was that about? When he was a little boy, he was quite rotund. And the, the same, my uncle, who was his cousin, Pat, used to tease him and say that he was like a cartoon character who was called A.B. Kabibble. So Kabibble turned into Cubby. And he was, and it was actually a very appropriate nickname because he was, he was like a bear, you know, very cuddly. I thought he was cuddly. Anyway. And how about the broccoli aspect of things? Is there actually a, a tie to Th- There broccoli? is, because broccoli, as we now know it, yes. was really a refinement of the Italian calabrese or broccoli de rap, which the family of DeSico and broccoli brought over from, from Italy mm-hmm. to Long Island. And so they cultivated it as the sort of refined vegetable we know. And it was a delicacy because not many places grew it. Mm-hmm. And so the two of these rascals, my uh, <laughs> father and Uncle Pat, used to take on a Friday night, they used to take the broccoli, drive into the city and go to the back door of all the fancy restaurants and say that they would give it to them for a table for four. <laughs> and then they'd, they'd find two dates and they'd go out on the town. That's fantastic. So by the time you came along, where was... He, in his career, he was no longer an assistant director. He kind of moved up, right? Right. He moved to England because there was a thing called the Edie Plan, which was a tax incentive for foreigners going there to make films. And so he made quite a lot of action adventure films with all kinds of Victor Mature and Alan Ladd. He did the Cockershell Heroes, which was a big hit. He had quite quite a few successful movies and did films with Bob Hope and Janet Leigh and various people. And then he made a film called The Trials of Oscar Wilde with Peter Finch, which was given a condemned rating at the time because of the homosexual story. Right. And they had said that he had to cut a line out of the film, which was an important line in the trial, and they refused to do it because it was a pivotal line in the trial. So it was given a condemned rating. And so he went into bankruptcy. So he was in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And his friend Wolf Mankiewicz, who he'd known for many years, said, what do you want to do? And he said, well, you know, I've always wanted to do these James Bond books. And Wolf said, well, I know the guy who's got the option on him. It's running out in six weeks. His name's Harry Saltzman. 
So he contacted Saltzman. They pounded the pavement and tried to set the deal to make the books into a film. They went to Arthur Krim at United Artists, who was a friend of my father's, and David Picker. The story is that David Picker, who was the nephew of one of the executives there, who was a young executive in the room, almost fell off his chair when Cubby mentioned James Bond because he had been an avid reader of the Mm -hmm. Bond books and had been trying to convince them to make them. And then when Cubby and Harry went in and said they had the rights, he said, we have to do this. And, you know, that was 1961. They signed the deal. Right. Just one question that occurs to me listening to you tell that story. Saltzman had the rights. They're going to run out in six weeks or whatever. Mm -hmm. Did Saltzman intend to renew them? Or why did they end up partnering? Well, what, what happened was Ian Fleming was kind of pretty disillusioned with the film industry by that point and wasn't going to renew them. Mm-hmm. He had had, there had been several attempts to for them to be made into films and, and he was pretty fed up with, with the whole situation. So the clock was ticking and they weren't going to be renewed. And so, you know, Harry said, well, look, you know, we'll do it together. Mm-hmm. If you can set it up, then we'll, we'll go into partnership, which is what they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, I mean, Cubby signed the sort of handshake deal with, with Arthur Krim on the spot. And then, you know, the rest is history, yeah. as they say. <laughs> I mean, that handshake has resulted in, you know, 24 movies. That's incredible. So from what I've read, you from a very early age were fascinated by what your dad was doing. Even before, it sounds like you fully appreciated that James Bond was not an actual person. <laughs> so what What was that it that... That makes me sound really stupid. No, you were a kid. No, you were a kid. I mean, I, it's probably, you were hearing the name a lot. But what, what was it, do you think, then, that appealed to you about what your dad was, you know, wanting to spend time with your dad while he was at work? He was just such a magnificent character. Yeah. He was the warmest, the funniest guy. He was the greatest company. And I just wanted to be with him mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, he was also an older dad. He was 51 when I was born. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just wanted to be with him. I wanted to soak up as much as I could of being around him. And so I just wanted to go to work with him. And I was probably a terrible nuisance, <laughs> but I used to hang around and answer the phones and do things in the office, and then go on the set. You were literally, I mean, I guess you were a toddler on Dr. No, the first of these, yeah. right? And then the responsibilities increased as as time, it was just sort of an evolution. I was around, yes, because I was born in 60. The first film was, was made in 61. So, I mean, I yeah, I was in Jamaica on the beach. <laughs> I don't remember it, but there's photographs right. of me there. And, and, uh, and it was a pretty extraordinary life. You know, my sister, brother, and I, we would go on location, on school holidays, Mm and we'd go to the studio um, when, you know, in London at Mm -hmm. Pinewood and was sort of the back lot was was sort of, you know, our playground, really. You mentioned to me before we went on the air that you, I I had no idea about this, that you had interned at the Hollywood Reporter at one point. And I just, so I guess that begs the question, it wasn't just because it was what your father did or, you know, the Bond, your interests were not just limited to what your father did or the Bond films, but you were interested in film overall, it would seem? Well, how could you not be? I mean, it is the most magical, exciting career you could ever hope to be involved in. I loved everything about it. I loved I love the sort of sense of family and, you know, when you're on a film, you, you become very close to people and it's, it is like the circus. You're like the traveling circus. And Billy Wilkerson was my 
godfather. Mm -hmm. He sadly died when I was very young. So I, unfortunately, I don't remember him. But Tichi was mm -hmm. my godmother, and she was very influential in my life. She was an extraordinary woman. She was a visionary. She took over the reporter from him. She started Women in Film. She really believed in communication. She, she was very forward-thinking. I remember her talking to me about computers and how computers were going to kind of become very everyday part of our lives. And in fact, she had said to me, and she was making, I remember she was making a speech once, I think it was at the Key Art Awards, which they used to sponsor too. And she, she said, you know, one day publishing, as we know it, will be obsolete and you will just turn everything on in your computer. I thought she was bonkers. But of course, yeah, she saw it coming. She saw it coming. So as the years went by and you got probably to the point of about to finish high school or or after that, can you talk about the different changing roles that you played on Bond movies prior to becoming a, a producer? It's kind of interesting, all the different responsibilities that you had first. Well, I think, you know, my father wanted me to know the business inside out. He had tremendous respect for people working in movies, doing all kinds of jobs. He had done, you know, the jobs himself. He'd been an assistant director. Um, so I started off as a floor runner, which I loved. Mm -hmm. What's I, it for floor for people who don't know? <laughs> I, I miss it. Well, it you know, you're sort of you're sort of a gopher. You kinda of run around, you do whatever whatever needs to be done, whether it's right. making coffee or opening dressing rooms up for the actors, you're there often, you know, very early on. And I love people, and I love working with people. I love talent. I love watching the whole process come to life. You know, I remember being with my dad on, on locations, and, you know, it would be very early in the morning, and you'd drive out to some field somewhere, and, and suddenly you'd see the trucks pulling up, the cables being pulled out, the lights going up. And the just the magic. I mean, it is like the... It is like the traveling circus, and, and everybody does their thing, and then it's all packed up and put away, and you see it on a screen. And it's being a part of that and, and witnessing the creative process that I think is just one of the most exhilarating things you could ever experience in life. Can I mention a few of these other responsibilities you had on different ones? And then if you can just tell me what your memory of it was or takeaway. I read you worked in the publicity department on The Spy Who Loved Me. This is when you were just 17. Yeah. <laughs> My job was captioning stills, which was quite arduous. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to, you know, look at all the negatives of the films. You'd right. have to come up with captions. And they just it always sounded so boring. I wasn't very particularly good at that. So then just six years after that, for the first time, you're an assistant director on Octopussy. What does an assistant director do? Well, there's various, yeah, I mean, that sounds very glamorous, but um, <laughs> I was basically just, again, you know, sort of a runner. I was a third assistant, what they used to call third assistants in those days. And we had, on that particular movie, we had a lot of young actresses that were all supposed to be part of the octopusy flying right. circus. So I I was the one responsible for sort of herding them around and getting them ready and and that was a lot of fun. They were some great women. I've I've stayed very close friends with many many right. of them. And it was such a joy, you know, to work on that and and of course I was on several films with Roger Moore and mm -hmm. he was an incredible man. Mm -hmm. You know, sadly he passed this mm -hmm. year and I just reflect on what a privilege it was to 
to have worked with him. He was extraordinary and a very great humanitarian. Mm-hmm. First time you were an associate producer was on The Living Daylights. This is 1987, 30 years ago. What did you- <laughs> 30 years ago. Well, that I had the great, again, another great privilege of working with Tom Pevsner, who was an amazing line producer who had started off as an assistant director. In fact, he was an assistant director for many of the greats like Fred Zinneman and Billy Wilder. And he taught me so much. He was a real mentor to me. He taught me all about scheduling and breaking down scripts. And he was remarkable. He spoke multiple languages. And and I sat across from him in his desk, and I just soaked it up. And he was an incredible man. So what was your first inkling that your father might want you and I guess your stepbrother is Michael G. Wilson to take over for him as producers? I guess he got he began to get ill. Well, no, he was a pretty extraordinary person because he he was very open about sharing knowledge. You know, they always say knowledge is power and people try to hang on to it. And he was the opposite. He was very, very accessible and his door was always open. He liked he liked young people. He he liked anyone who was interested in movies. He would talk to them and try and help them. And he was incredibly generous to me. And and you know, he believed that women you know, and even way back then, that women could do any job mm-hmm. like a man. In fact, he thought many times that women were were better suited to certain jobs. And. And so he didn't push me in the direction. He just knew I loved it. And so he gave me the opportunity. Were you and Michael always close? Well, yes. Michael's 18 years older than me, so we didn't grow up together. But he started working with my father. He was a lawyer, and he started working on the business side of things and then started working as a writer. And so he... You know, he had a lot of experience in the films, and he was very generous, too, about including me in things. So I was just there, <laughs> and, and I, I just learned as much as I could. But I think the thing was that my father, his passion, that was the thing that rubbed off on me, mm-hmm. his passion for what he did. And that's something that was really infectious, you know, and he just so enjoyed it. And, and he, he had come from very humble beginnings, and so when he hit the jackpot, and boy, was James Bond the jackpot, he wanted everybody to come along. He wanted everybody to enjoy his success. Uh, he never took it for granted. And that was really a wonderful quality, you know, that he had. He liked to, to remember where he came from. He never forgot that. He never put on airs and graces, you know. He, he just always remembered who he was. That's great. So when you and Michael are now empowered as producers for the first time here on Ahead of GoldenEye, which came out in 95. So we're talking, I guess, a few years before that. How did you guys figure out your dynamic? I understand you're in some ways very different people. That I, It sounds like he gets a kick out of some of the, like he's made cameos and stuff. You don't really even like to be photographed and you don't like interviews, which is why I appreciate you doing this. But like, how did you figure out how you would approach this? Did you say you're going to do certain things and I'm going to do others? Or did you all say, did you say we're going to do everything together? What was the dynamic? Well, we kind of did everything together. My father kind of brought us up to to all kind of pull in together. And it just kind of worked out that way. I think our in, we are very different. Michael and I are very different. We have different interests and different abilities. 
But what's kind of funny about it is people often would try to, if they got an answer from Michael they didn't like, they'd come to me or vice versa. And the funny thing was that we always ended up giving the same answer, even though we approached it from different places. And I think that was because of the way that my dad kind of indoctrinated Mm -hmm. us into the business. So strangely enough, when it comes to bond, we always agree. Now, just so people understand what it means to be a producer of the Bond franchise, the movies, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand you guys, and this is certainly not the case on every other kind of movie, you have the final say when it comes to every line of dialogue, casting, (laughs) marketing and publicity, product partners, things like that. Was that something that your father and Harry also had, or is that something that you guys had to kind of fight to get? If only. I mean, that's the theory. But, you know, film is a collaborative medium, as you well know. And so, you know, we are the custodians of this extraordinary character, James Bond, and we're partners with MGM. And we have a great relationship with them. And it's been a relationship that started with United Artists and went into MGM. Because they absorbed UA at a certain point. That's right. And so we like to consider ourselves as being very collaborative. Uh, Not everybody would agree with that. (laughs) Studio heads have not always agreed that we're that collaborative. But I think we're very protective of the brand, you know, because it's it's the family business. It's we have a passion for it. You know, my father used to say, don't let them screw it up. You screw it up, you take, you know, you take the responsibility, you screw it up, but don't let other people screw it up. How would you describe what that brand is? I mean, we all know it when we see it, but you probably have thought about it a lot more than the rest of us. What, what is the gist of it? Well, it's the character of James Bond, really. You know, he's the knight errant who, I think, you know, he's changed over the years to some extent, depending on the person that that's played him and he's been through many decades and so he's he's morphed i think the way that daniel craig has portrayed him has been you know extraordinary Mm -hmm. and i think he's brought a lot of the humanity to the character that is certainly needed in this day and age we need heroes i think that are human Mm -hmm. who who want to do the right thing Mm -hmm. and i think daniel's done an incredible job in doing that and making bond relevant to today you know, I'm really, really pleased that he's decided to come back for another one because yeah. my heart was breaking. <laughs> <laughs> Let's frame the context of you going into your first film as a producer, the first Bond film you were the producer with Michael of. This is 22 years ago, GoldenEye. At the time, it had been six years since the last Bond before that. And from what I understand, some people including people at UA, were skeptical that it was a great idea to revive the the series at that point. Why was that? Well, I mean, I remember that they were saying, the Cold War is over. The world is in a safe place. And, you know, Bond is dead. I mean, what relevance does he have to today's world? And so we had to come back with a story that would prove his relevance. And so Goldeneye was was that. And we were very lucky that Pierce agreed to come and play him and played him so beautifully. And, you know, that movie was just hitting the nail on the head. I mean, we that movie was, was answering that question, you know, is he relevant today? And mm-hmm. our thesis was that the world was more dangerous than ever. 
unfortunately, we were right. Yeah. Now, a year after that came out, your father passed away. I assume that means he got to see the the release of GoldenEye and saw that it was in good hands. He did. But he, you know, he felt that we all kind of had been, because we'd all been working together. I mean, I think he felt that Bond, he always said that Bond would go on beyond him. Mm-hmm. He had such faith in in what he, they had all started, mm-hmm. you know, that he believed it would go on forever. Was it kind of nice for you, though, that at least, you know, he saw one that you were the producer of? Yes. I mean, he, it made him happy, yeah. made him very happy. So those next few years, Tomorrow Never Dies in 97, The World Is Not Enough in 99, Die Another Day 2002, all with Pierce Brosnan. But then for Casino Royale, which I've read, you said your father dreamed of making. It was sort of, in his view, like an origin story of the Bond story. You now felt, I guess, because it was an origin story, it was it was time for another Bond? Well, they had, Cubby and Harry had wanted, obviously, to get the rights to Casino Royale because it was the origin story, but it had been made into a television play and also into a, a spoof. later on yeah. it was made into a spoof because Columbia had the rights to it. So we managed to get the rights and it was like getting the keys to the castle. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really exciting to have the opportunity to start from the beginning. And the big challenge, obviously, was who do you start with? Because, you know, Sean Connery had been the original Bond, and it had been followed up by some incredible actors, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, enter Daniel Craig. But enter him only because you happen to have seen Layer Cake, right? Well, actually, it wasn't layer cake. It's so funny because people always say that. You know, I grew up in London. I lived in London. And he was in a a series called Our Friends from the North. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I remember seeing him. I'd also seen him in the theater. But strangely enough, it was his role in Elizabeth, the movie Elizabeth. With Kate Blanchett. I remember seeing him on the screen. And I was just, just, there's a shot of him walking down the corridor. And... I just said, oh, my God, this is the most incredible. He has the most incredible presence on the screen. You cannot take your eyes off him on the screen. And that's been true of everything he's ever done. You know, he is just, he's lit from within. So when you saw that for the first time in 98, did it in any way go through your mind, this is a potential bond? Well, I just remember thinking, my God, what a a force. What a force of, and... So I've, you know, always just watched everything he did. And then when it came time when we had to recast the role for Casino Royale, I thought, oh, my God, he is it. (laughs) And he didn't want to do it. (laughs) Well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you, because why would somebody and maybe, you know, I guess he's an example you can use. Maybe there have been others. This is the coolest character in movies. Why do some people hesitate before saying they'd want to do it? Is it that they're afraid that they'll not be able to be seen in another light? Well, Daniel Craig is not afraid of anything. (laughs) No, I think it's because he spent many years, you know, perfecting his craft, portraying characters in very diverse roles and not wanting to be typecast. And then, of course, you offer him a role where, you know, so many actors would feel that they would be typecast in. So he took some convincing. (laughs) Fortunately, you know, the script... It all came down to the script. The script was so good. And he said, I I can't turn this down. (laughs) And so that was 11 years ago now. You make me feel so (laughs) old. 
Oh my god. Well, let me ask you. I guess when you decide in that case it's it's, you know, appropriate now, it's a time to change bonds. Is that at, at once the the hardest and the best part of the job to have to on the one hand call up in that case Pierce Brosnan and then on the other hand call up Daniel Craig and and let them know about this decision? What's that like? It's always a very difficult decision because you know, when you make these movies, they take, you know, they they take a year, two years of your life. You're shooting with an actor for six months and prepping. So, you know, and you become very close. You come, become close with their families. You become, you know, you, you do become a family. And, you know, it was very hard with all the actors. I mean, I, I was too young to really know Sean Connery, mm-hmm. but I remember him. I remember George. Certainly Roger, I became very close to. Tim Dalton. Pierce and Daniel, and they are all like family members. And so, you know, it's very intense. You, you spend a lot of time together, you travel the world. So moving on from any of them is, is always very painful. Even in, you know, m- most of the case, you know, everything was agreed upon mm-hmm. and they were happy to move on to other things, but it's nonetheless, <laughs> it's, tough, it's, yeah. it's tough, but fortunately we've stayed close, yeah. all of us. Yeah. Just one addendum there. You at one time said, quote, oh, no. when we auditioned for the role of Bond, we asked actors to do the scene in From Russia with Love where Bond meets Tatiana Romanova for the first time, <laughs> close quote. So I just have to ask, why that scene? Well, because it, it shows all the various facets of, of the Bond character. I mean, it's kind of, maybe it seems a little outdated now, but it's kind of fun to, to play that scene, and most actors kind of like it. I don't know. I think it's it's a sort of a, it's the scene is a charm, really, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of fun. Last two before we get to the, the present. Skyfall 2012, you hired Sam Mendes to succeed Martin Campbell. This, I think, would have been the first Oscar-winning director to direct a Bond film. Was part of the idea there that he would help to bring in a lot of other top-caliber actors to surround Daniel Craig? I think we just wanted to get a... Ter- you know, you always want to get a terrific director mm-hmm. who's going to bring some something new to the, to the series. And Daniel had worked with Sam. Obviously, I was a huge fan of Sam's, as was Michael. And, you know, he's British, mm-hmm. which was... That's a key, <laughs> key element. And what was so fabulous about Sam is that although he's, you know, a very important director, Oscar winning and all this stuff, at the heart of him, there was, when it came to directing a James Bond film, he was a 12-year-old boy. And that's really what, <laughs> what appealed to us because he wanted to make the best Bond film ever. What did you say when he floated the idea, I assume, for the first time that maybe we'll kill off Judy Dench's M? Well, actually, it was the writers that that came up with that. Yeah. Did, did you so, resist that? Well, that's a tough. One. It was a tough one because you know we loved Judy and we had a long-standing relationship with her, and just the thought of making a movie without her was extremely painful. But it really moved people, and and that was the thing that sold us yeah. on it. That you know she was the emotional heart of. Bond's family mm-hmm. and taking her away was was going to be a big thing for him and and it really worked. 
And then the most recent of the Bonds was Spectre 2015. I guess a lot of producing is crisis management. And uh, <laughs> it seems like, you know, sometimes the location becomes unavailable because of weather or whatever. And you've got to quickly figure it out. In this case with Spectre, the the big one, I guess, was that Daniel, who likes to do his own stunts, I guess, really messed up his knee doing one and had to have surgery and all of this. And you are left with solving how do we rejigger this so that we we don't go way over budget and we don't fall behind and all this. So I just wonder to give an example of what a producer has to do, particularly on something as big as a Bond movie. How did you handle this where you get the news, he's unavailable suddenly? Well, when young kids ask me about, you know, what's it what's it like to be a film producer, I always say don't become a film producer if you don't like problems, because <laughs> that's the job. Yeah. You've got to solve problems. You've got to come up with creative ways to, to make things happen. You know, Daniel is, is one of those extraordinary actors who wants to do everything himself, and he really pushes himself to be as believable as possible and within the limits that we will allow him to. And, you know, sometimes that results in injuries. And, you know, he's extraordinary. You know, he had an injury and we were in Mexico City. And, you know, that was a very, very big pre-title sequence. We had 1,500 extras. Such a beautiful, beautiful sequence in the way it was developed by Sam and, and all the contributors to that, the production designer and the hair and the makeup and the costumes and everything. Anyway, you know, we just worked around it. And Daniel was incredibly cooperative. He just, you know, got on with it. He got surgery and then he moved on and and you, in the Got meantime, back. you just move up different things on the schedule, or how do you oh, have to? We were, yeah, it's always <laughs> it's a big Rubik's cube, right. you know. But we have such a great team, art department, extraordinary Dennis Gasner, yeah. who's just the most fabulous designer, and we had great assistant director Michael Lerman, and you know, it's you're it's a team effort, and everybody pulls together. But it all came from Daniel, you know, who just was determined to he keeps himself in such peak physical condition. Mm -hmm. He is like an athlete, mm -hmm. a supreme athlete. Yeah. So fortunately, his ability to recover is pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So he, he got back to work pretty quickly. So this brings us to 2017 when over Labor Day weekend, I'm at the Telluride Film Festival like every year in Colorado. And you're always excited because this is where all the movies we're going to be talking about for the next few months are unveiled. And one of them was Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. And what I've since learned is that you and Peter Turner, whose experiences inspired, obviously, the book that he then wrote in 1986, which inspired the film that we're seeing now, you and he go back a long way. In fact, before even Gloria Graham, the the reference film star, was dead. She died in 1981. So how did you and Peter first meet? And maybe you can just take us through what's happened in the years since then. Well, I met Peter 40 years ago wow. when I was 17. And my boyfriend at the time was, was working with him on a TV series. And we became, you know, very close friends. And he was from Liverpool, and so I got to know him in London. And then I was in L.A., and he called up, and, and he said, oh, I'm here. And I said, oh, what are you doing in L.A.? And he said, oh, I'm here with a friend, and I'm down in Malibu. So we went down to see him, and he was staying in a trailer park for senior citizens, which I thought was a little <laughs> bizarre. So we pulled in, and we went to the 
the address he had given us and knocked on the door. And as the door opened, this mop of blonde hair was revealed the face of Gloria Graham. Did and you recognize her? Yes, immediately. I was, oh my God. And I real, I thought I'd knocked on the wrong door. <laughs> and then his head popped up behind her and he's, oh, hello, there you are. I'm, I'm here with Gloria. How old would you say she was at the time? She was in her mid to late 50s. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of fun knocking around. And then they were in, in England together and we spent some time there. But that first visit though, when you knock on the trailer door, did you understand that? the dynamics of their relationship? Well, they were so comfortable with each other and they were so cute and adorable together and they had so much fun that it didn't really faze me, you Mm -hmm. know? But they were open with you. Hey, we're involved with each other. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. they were there as a couple for sure. And she was extraordinary. She had great humor and she was just so much fun. She was so vibrant. Mm -hmm. And they really just got each other. You know, and I, I thought that was so wonderful. And she was very ahead of her time. She was very non-judgmental mm-hmm. and open to everything. And she was, you know, she had a voracious appetite for life. And she, you know, the the film roles had dried up. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd won an Oscar and and she was an extraordinary actress and very versatile when you look at her body of work. I mean, she's known really for being a film noir star, mm-hmm. but, you know, she was also an Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and It's a Wonderful Life, and The Greatest Show on Earth, and as well as all those the masterpiece films like uh, In a Lonely Place. We should note that, just as a fun fact insertion here, your movies that you make with Michael, the Bond movies, have the production company is, I guess, called Eon. Why is it called that? Well, apparently... <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it's it stands for everything or nothing. Okay, and now and we the, like that. The reason I prompt this is that you did not make film stars don't die in Liverpool under that banner. Instead, what is the production company that you did with for that this one? Bad and Beautiful. The bad and Beautiful, which is the movie that Gloria won her <laughs> yeah. Oscar for. That was that was yes the the company we set up for that movie, and she's fantastic and yes. bad and beautiful. She was just an incredible actress, and you know I think. When we set out to make this movie, one of the things we wanted to do was to really celebrate her. Mm-hmm. And for the people that were familiar with her work to to kind of remind them of what she had done. And for those who weren't, to bring her yeah. back into the public view because she really was an incredible actress. So Gloria dies in 1981. Peter writes a book that's published in 1986. At which point you were working as an associate producer for the first time, again, back on Living Daylights. This is nine years before you've produced the film yourself. And yet, from what I understand, you were thinking pretty much as soon as you read the book, you might want to one day make this into a movie? Absolutely. I mean, after Gloria died, Peter was, you know, really bereft. And a couple of years later, he handed us this manuscript. I said, well, what is is this? And he said, well, I've just just been writing about Gloria, you know, and we read it so beautiful. And it was published immediately. And it did very well. And lots and lots of people wanted to make it. In fact, Putnam over at Columbia, Mm -hmm. uh, they optioned it, it was supposed to get made several times. But for various reasons, it didn't. And then about 22 years ago, Peter said to me, I really want you to do it. And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to do it. And he said, no, no, I really want you to do it. So I got the rights. And, of course, the whole thing was, who do you get to play her? Mm -hmm. 
And in fact, the extraordinary Annette Benning was making The Grifters mm-hmm. with Stephen Frears. And he told her to look at Gloria Graham movies as an inspiration for that character. Oh, my God. And so when you think about that's, it, Because that's you can 1990 see. is The Grifters. Yeah. We're going back. That's yeah. amazing. So I got to know her. We we became friends. We both had our babies at the same time. And, mm-hmm. and so we were hanging out. And, and I'm, I gave her the book. And she read it. And she loved it. And, of course, she was way too young right. to do it. But she was really the only person who could play her. And, so and we knew crazy. that. So in a way, you kind of had to wait. We had to wait. And about six or seven years ago, we were in London at the BAFTAs. Mm-hmm in the ladies room and she turned to me and she said you know that book that film stars book and i said yeah and she said are we gonna make it and i said yes wow. <laughs> let's make it so you know it's really it's all about her and she is so incredible in this mm-hmm. film it's good you waited because then you also you wouldn't have had jamie bell well we wouldn't have had jamie bell because if we had done it you know he would have been way too young and you know peter always said that is sort of Gloria was <laughs> manipulating things from yeah. above and she was waiting. And I think, you know, I think it was right to wait until all the, all the elements fell into place. But the main thing is Annette Benning, and her performance is, I mean, it, it was a transcendental experience working with her. I've never known anyone who could do what she does. She's, it's all about the pursuit of truth for her and the character, the truthfulness of the character she has, you know, no vanity. She just goes for it. And it is a transcendental experience. And watching her on a set is really something. I and heard you would get emotional just I watching would, it. I would cry. I mean, Paul would be turning to me and I'd be sobbing at the monitor. Because she just, you know, she just makes everything feel very real. And of course, it was very difficult to find someone who could hold their own mm-hmm. uh, against her. And Jamie... When Jamie came over, he came over to my house with Paul and Annette, and he walked in, and then he and Annette read a scene. And again, I mean, I I burst into tears. Everybody's going to think I'm a big crybaby. I don't cry that often, but there's something so moving about this story and their relationship that is so deep. And the whole story, I mean, I just find so incredibly moving. It's... It's an unconditional love, and it's about this character who, at the most vulnerable time in her life, is accepted into this family who care for her. And she she finds a, someone who really genuinely loves her and sees her for who she is. And I just find it to be a, just such a beautiful story, and a, and a very life-affirming story, too. As yeah, we don't see good people that often in movies, unfortunately. Don't. And that's the thing, you know, it's about good, honest, hardworking people. It just accepting someone who happened to be a movie star and and the humanity of the story really gets to me. You've described it as a memory play, which is a phrase that I always immediately associate with the Glass Menagerie and certain others. In this case, I guess the goal that you all had, I think, was to make it feel like Jamie and Annette are almost in a Gloria Graham movie, right? The whole feel of it. This doesn't feel like uh, every other movie that you see now. Right, and that's the brilliance of Paul McGuigan. When he read the script, which Matt Greenhalgh had written, a be- done a beautiful job on, and, and 
and Paul came in and talked to us, and he, and that's the way he described it. He said, you know, I want visually, I want this film to feel as if it is a film that was made in Gloria's time, and we used all kind of very old-fashioned techniques, back projection. In fact, we we made the Guinness World Book of Records for the largest back projection really? screen. Oh yes. my god! It's for the Malibu the right. scene, and you know so visually he wanted it to have that feel and and it does and and it captures that that you know what's so brilliant about the way he he's done it and also the beautiful cinematographer Ula Pontikos and the way she shot it is that you know you go from time period to time period and it is it is about memory mm-hmm. and memory and time and place and Gloria is in that sort of time period of of those films in fact I was talking to somebody this morning who had seen the film and and it was really lovely. He said that, you know, he had always only seen Gloria in black and white. He'd never seen Oklahoma. And he said it was just incredible because he felt in the way Annette's performance was the first time he'd seen Gloria in color. That's cool. And and I love that line in the script when Peter first meets her and the landlady says she was a big star in black and white movies, not doing so well in color. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, can you compare and, and contrast the experience for you as a producer of making a gargantuan size movie like some of these Bond movies versus a very small, intimate project from what I understand this one was? Well, there are similarities. One is that you never have enough money. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Right. You never have enough money and you never have enough time. No matter what movie, no right. matter what the budget, it's always the same. Right. Because I think, you know, the thing is you want it to be as good as it can be. And mm. so your appetite is always very large. So there are similarities. The thing that was so great about this particular experience of making film stars don't die in Liverpool is the intimacy that we all felt I mean, it had a lot to do with the nature of the story. Uh-huh. And, you know, so many people, everybody, unfortunately, has been touched by illness, uh-huh. and particularly cancer. And we've all lost people that we love. And so it was a very moving experience because, you know, we people would reveal a lot about themselves and their own personal stories, and, and everybody brought so much to it. And the performances, I mean, Annette Benning. I mean, what can I say? I think it's one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen. And she and Jamie, what's so wonderful about them is they really do feel like a couple mm-hmm. in the movie. And you never once, the, the, the whole thing about age doesn't even enter into it. You don't even notice an age difference between the two of them. And I also think as a woman, it's so fantastic to have a film about a woman in her 50s who was vibrant and sexual and fun-loving and desirable all at the same time. You know, most women in their 50s are playing mothers or school teachers or things. This is a woman who is playing a very complex character, and it's just such a superb performance. And Jamie's, we see the, we see her through Jamie's eyes, and Jamie really holds his own. And it's just a very, very touching film yeah. and fun. Yeah. too you know the dance scene between yeah, the two great. of them is just <laughs> what a joy and then you know the rest of the cast i mean julie walters and vanessa redgrave yeah. and ken cranham and stephen graham right, an i ensemble. mean now just a, a another time for another fun fact and correct me if any of this is wrong but in addition to shooting in liverpool and in london 
you went back to familiar territory, did some Pinewood, which is a place you know well, and then also a few of your frequent Bond collaborators, casting director Debbie McWilliams, costume designer Johnny, Johnny Tamim, Naomi Dunn. Naomi Dunn, makeup, makeup and hair design. Yeah. It's good. To, I guess you, you have essentially a stock company of people who you know really well, right? I mean, we have the greatest collection of talent that one could ever possibly assemble. And what was so great about it is so many of them came to help us. And and because we were using these techniques like the back projection and various things like that, a lot of wonderful talented technicians who, you know, were experts in all of that came just for fun to help yeah. us out. And it was really such a such a great experience and Pinewood is like a second home to me and they had just built some new stages and so we christened one of the new stages <laughs> and they were very very generous to us because we were operating on a very low budget mm-hmm. and I think the film is just a beautiful um, artistic achievement. Can you talk about the way people have been responding to it? I've heard from not only women but also men who say they cry at it and I wonder why you think that, you know, it affects them in that way as well. Sometimes men are, they like to put up more of an emotional shield. Why does this crack it? I think, you know, men don't get the opportunity to cry that often. And I think that it's, there's something about the purity of the love story and the unconditional nature of the love story, love and loss. And I think that's something we've all experienced. And, you know, Annette really, really touches you because her character is is very complex. I mean, she's she plays Gloria to a T. She gets all aspects of Gloria and the vulnerability, which is really powerful, you know, to think that, you know, here's someone who Gloria had been an Oscar award-winning actress and and over time, you know, the roles dried up. She wanted to work. She was an artist. She wanted to work. She didn't get offered work. So she went where the work was, which was regional theater in in England. She'd always wanted to do theater. She started as a theater actress. So she went she went there. And there's a beautiful um, scene in the movie when she is saying to Peter that she wants to go and work for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And she wants to play Juliet. And she's in her 50s, you know, and and he makes a joke and says, you mean the nurse? And and you just, the way Annette plays that scene, she starts off, look, when you're in love, you you feel young, you feel like Juliet. And that's what she conveys in that scene. She's, at the beginning of the scene, she's coquettish and flirtatious and beaming with love and romance and romantic notions. And, and when he says that, everything crumbles and the vulnerability comes across and and it's just so powerful. And I think, you know, women, we, we all kind of know that feeling of being let down. And I think men also can find that very touching. You and know? it's interesting. The movie is essentially told from the point of view of this young guy, which I think maybe men empathize even more because they can relate. Relate to, to it and yeah. relate to, you know, first love or yeah. first major impact someone right. had in their lives and then losing them. And yeah, and Jamie is incredible in the role. And and it is true. Uh, so many men I know openly cry, sob in this movie. But again, it's very life-affirming. It's not, it's not uh, you know, one of those movies that you come out feeling depressed. You don't feel depressed at all. 
and I love the fact that at the end we we show the real footage of Gloria oh, winning great. her Oscar that's because great. I think you know you feel at the end of that. Now the other incredible lucky good fortune we had was to have Elvis Costello write the most beautiful love ballad. Mm-hmm. And he was a huge fan of Gloria Graham's and Paul was reading his autobiography and he speaks about Gloria Graham and his autobiography and we were in London shooting or preparing to shoot and Colin Baines, the other producer, said, oh, you know, Elvis is performing at the London Palladium. So we said, well, we got to go. <laughs> and we were like teenagers. Yeah. We went to the show and then we crashed in his dressing room. We pounded <laughs> on the door and we said, because in the show, he had these huge projections of Gloria no, Graham. during the show? During the show. Without having any idea but, that you were there? No, he had no idea. It was part of his show. So we were like, well, this is meant to be. We've got us. So we banging on his door, and, and he was so sweet. I mean, he'd never met any of us before, and he let us in. I think he was quite taken aback. And, you know, we said to him, look, we're making this movie about Gloria, and, you know, will you do something? And he said, can I write a song? We said, yeah, of course you can write a song. That's unbelievable. So we sent him the script, and we showed him some footage, and then Paul McGuigan, I'll never forget it, he sent me an email on Christmas Day, and he had gotten in his mailbox on his computer, he'd gotten the song from Elvis on Christmas Day. And as we said, it was the greatest Christmas present. And he really... I think the lyrically, the song really sums up Gloria and this beautiful, beautiful song. You shouldn't look at me that way. It's just the the icing yeah. on the cake, as far as I'm concerned. And he, Elvis, is just an incredible artist, and it's the way he sings it, the beautiful lyric, and the melody of it is just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. With our last few minutes here, I hope we can talk about what you're doing next and then just a few kind of quick big picture things so i believe november 2018 we now know is the next is the 25th bond movie 25 we know daniel craig's coming back thank god do we know a title or a director yet no well no. i don't you don't you, you, so that's <laughs> what i'm saying anybody but, else but like you well, no, you no. would so you, that's still <laughs> to be determined right? still to be determined you've said daniel is your all-time favorite bond does the incumbent always get that answer, or or is that I? You more know complex? what the the truth is. I've loved them all. They're all they've all been incredible. Right, but he is particularly incredible. Using this Bond twenty five as an example, how do you start the process of a story? Because you're out of Victor Fleming books to adapt. So Ian Fleming, not Victor Fleming. Excuse but me. <laughs> I know, but Victor Fleming yeah, was, was pretty cool too. Um, excuse me. Yeah. But uh, he's gone with the wind. Yes, so, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, like, yes, well, we've been, you know, fortunate to have some t- pretty terrific writers coming up with great stories all these years. So we're back to the drawing board yeah. again with Rob and Neil, our writers, and they're busy working away, trying to come up with something fantastic. Right. Do you think that, I mean, to what extent do you like to let world events shape what's happening in the Bond universe? Like, for instance, just to cite an example, obviously right now we're having this whole female empowerment moment as a result of the terrible stuff that's been revealed about what's been happening certainly in this town would that ever color the way that a bond girl or a bond woman is portrayed you know do you think that you have more empowered females because that's going on in the society i think you know these films tend to reflect the times and so we always try to push the envelope a little bit and if you look at them over the years you can see how he's evolved they're not 
political movies, but we like them to feel relevant. So, you know, all of that stuff will be in the in the cooking pot. Yes. I guess you've arrived at an interesting turning point here because after distributing the last four installments, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Inspector, through Sony, that deal is over, and I believe you're now being courted by others. Why only now? I heard you guys are only really looking for a one-installment deal with the next deal. Why would that be? No, I think we're, we're very open, open okay. to what, yes, to the future, and it's exciting to be courted, yeah. as you put it, and uh, there's a lot of interesting people out there. You know, we'll hopefully be making that decision sometime early next year. What do you look for in a, in a good partner? Well, you know, we've been very lucky. You know, we have Gary Barber at MGM is, is a great partner, and, and so he's really leading this whole crusade to find the next uh, distributor. We look for, you know, passion, I think. People who get us and understand the character and what we try to do and creative, be a strong creative force and help us bring the next Bond out to the audiences. One thing that occurred to me, I just thought I'd run by you because you mentioned MGM, they recently signed this separate distribution deal with Annapurna. Annapurna, I guess one of the few distributors that's run by a woman, they have a domestic reach, but they don't have an international reach. So hypothetically, would you ever divide those things up? Would you work with a domestic distributor that wasn't necessarily the same as the international distributor? Well, this is all you know to be decided with yeah. Gary in, in the future. And then the things that people have been asking lately, would you ever hire a person of color or even a woman to play James Bond one day? Could it be Jamie Bond? <laughs> Anything is possible. Is right possible. now, it's Daniel Craig, right. and I'm very happy with Daniel Craig, but who knows what the future will bring. That's what's so exciting about Bond. Will we ever see a Bond crossover film in the way that we've seen Batman versus Superman or things like that? Will it, Under your watch, will we ever see something like that? I think probably unlikely. Probably unlikely, right? I figured that was... And then... Uh, <laughs> What would your father have made of the fact that 55 years after Dr. No, if my math is correct, which I think it is, we're still talking about James Bond and it's gone as strong as ever? I mean, would he have even, you know, do you believe it? He certainly believed it. And so did Ian Fleming, who, you know, said to Cubby and Harry, you know, you're going to have to write stories uh, that Bond is going to go on beyond my lifetime. And certainly Cubby felt that way, too. Ian Fleming wrote an incredible character and someone that sustained, uh, you know, through many decades. And I think he'll he'll keep going. One day in the hopefully very distant future, we're all headed to the screening room in the sky. After your time as the custodian of this is over and Michael's, what would you like to see happen with it? Is there Are there other members of the family that would keep it? or It's a family business. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice to think that, that the family will continue. But, you know, again, Bond belongs to everybody. Right. So I think, you know, we'll just see. He'll, he'll survive whatever happens. Right. And James la- Bond will survive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and lastly, uh, having now produced huge movies, small movies, inside and outside of Bond, also theater, I want to thank you because I cover that as well. And I've, you've done some great things, including Once and others. What are the things at this point in time as sort of a time capsule? Here we are, end of 2017. What do you love the most and the least about being a producer? You know, to be honest, there isn't a least. I love what I do. 
it's my passion. I love making movies and I love working with the kind of people, you know, to get up in the morning and be able to watch Annette Benning and Jamie Bell to, to have Elvis Costello write a song for you to be, you know, with a maestro like Paul McGuigan, to see these stories come to life is, is a gift and a privilege. And I don't take it for granted ever. And I, I can't imagine I ever will. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank Thank you you for a lot of entertainment over the years. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.